Hello and welcome to the Remaining Sane, Finding Peace in Our Chaos podcast, a podcast about both theology and police work. I'm your host, Will. In today's episode, I talk with Dr. Michael McClyman, a professor at St. Louis University. Dr. McClyman, how are you today? I'm doing just fine. How are Good. you doing? Good. Um, would you mind giving a brief background as to who you are, um, the kind of academic work that you do, just a you know, two big, brief two, three minutes about yourself? Sure. Um, I have been a professor uh, now for uh, more than uh, 25 years, actually almost 35 years, if you include uh, earlier institutions where I was affiliated. Um, I uh, uh, did my training at Northwestern Yale in the University of Chicago, was a, a research chemist originally, so I left uh, scientific research and to go to seminary and do PhD work in religion and theology. And then I taught at Wheaton College at Westmont, which is another evangelical college, uh, University of California, San Diego, uh, St. Louis University, and then briefly uh, also at some other, was affiliated with Emory, Yale, uh, University of Birmingham, it's in England rather than Alabama, and the University of Berlin most recently. So I probably uh, was best known have been best known for my work on uh, Jonathan Edwards, the early American thinker, co-wrote a large book on him, um, actually did a couple books, but a large co-authored book with Gerald McDermott, which is called The Theology of Jonathan Edwards. Um, I've worked on, uh, after working on Edwards, worked on religious revival movements in, in North America, edited the Encyclopedia of Religious Revivals, on another edited collection. And then I have you know, work kind of eclectically. I've done some work in biblical studies. I, when I was at University of California, San Diego, David Noel Friedman, who is a well-known uh, Hebrew Bible scholar, r- recruited me, and I wrote a short. Cha- I wrote a chapter that became a short book on the life of Jesus called "Familiar Stranger." Um, more recently, I have been best known for my work as a critique of Christian universalism, the doctrine that everyone will finally be saved, and so. That came out in a two-volume work called The Devil's Redemption, and it's about 1,300 pages in the two volumes. And then most recently, I have published a, a general introduction to Christian spirituality called Martyrs, Monks, and Mystics. So, um, And then beyond that, at St. Louis University, where I've been um, outside of the, the, the brief stints at other universities, I have been directing teaching undergraduate courses, but also directing PhD students. I've had a total of about 15, and a number of them are professors in different places as well. So th- there's a brief overview. Okay. Speaking about your work on universalism, um, one of the things that has really struck me about Christian universalism as a whole, and you know, trying to be charitable to people that ascribe to universalism, um, specifically Christian universalism, is that there is a, I would say, a distinct lack of encountering um, the world viscerally for some of these people that ascribe to a broad Christian universalism. Uh, because you're not, and, and because of that, it, it makes you kind of okay with the idea that all people will go to heaven, even the ones that 
you know how like how horrible things that they have done and you know this is something you've talked about before that the um the devil redeemed is an inherently provocative title for your book because it essentially you're saying that the devil will be redeemed if um if you have if you believe that god will redeem everyone yes and so um one of the one of the problems and i think it, the more that you work with real people in um in settings that you know like police officers or firefighters um or people that really interact with people on a day-to-day -day visceral basis you you see some just horrible people doing horrible stuff and it is it's almost it's it's well it's very counterintuitive for you to say that 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 person is is going to be you know will be redeemed at the end um in fact it, it it for some stuff that you know that you've seen this person commit heinous horrible atrocious acts over and over it kind of makes you depressed if you don't think that they are going to have to account for their own sins right well the what you're saying uh will is very much in line with the article that I did, an online article that probably got more response than than the, the book, which was so extensive. Called the article is called "The Opiate of the Theologians," and so what I'm arguing there, in effect, this is was published online with First Things, which is pretty well known, you know, New York based um, journal of religion and politics. But what I was arguing is that universalism is a way that we might want the world to be that, you know, everyone gladly receives the glad news, you know, and yet, <laughs> you know, I, I use the analogy of like the triumphal entry of Jesus. Everyone is cheering. Everyone's happy. Can't we just play that loop endlessly? You know, wouldn't it be wonderful, you know, if we just could stay there forever? Well, guess what? The gospel tells us that, uh, that Jesus was crucified just days after that. And of course, we have every reason to think that some of the people who are shouting, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna, later cried out, crucify him. And so the gospel story is, is unsentimental. It doesn't really allow us to, to neglect the, the reality of human hardness of heart. Also, John chapter 3 is, is very clear. John 3, before John 3.16, or shoot, excuse me, just after John 3.16, it says, this is the judgment that uh, the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. And in that same text, it talks about those who come to the light and those who flee from the light. And so... This is the reality of the world we're living in. You have to imagine a different kind of world where, you know, there are no enemies. You know, there are only friends, and then there are the friends we are yet to make because, you know, discussion, face-to-face -face encounter, loving gestures are going to be reciprocated. And I mean, if you try to apply this in a political police setting, it'd be like, it'd be like saying, you know, that Hitler needed a hug. You know, Stalin needed a, a friendly hello. You know, and if they had just received that, then maybe they wouldn't have uh, become mass murderers and invaded the, the neighboring countries. And again, this is a very sentimentalized view of human nature and human life. It doesn't fit with the record of history at all, as you're saying. Mm -hmm. Nor does it fit with, you know, the everyday reality of, I, I would argue, um, you know, people that have to work in these kind of environments. You know, get me, don't get me wrong when I say have to work. I you know I really do enjoy my work. However, uh, I have I've talked about in this podcast before. I have walked in on some pretty horrible stuff happening, 
And, you know, the idea that, you know, hey, I'm just going to be the friend to that dude. That doesn't mean that God can't redeem that person. But that does mean that that person's life has a whole lot of fixing to do. Right. Right. Yes, I, I, I see that pretty clearly. And I and although this isn't the focus of our, our, our discussion today, I think recent events in just this month you know, this last month with Israel and Hamas have sort of um, kind of underscored this this point yeah. about the, the reality of uh, of evil and that that some there's some who don't seem reconcilable. Correct. Um, there, the, you know, the people say, let's let you, you know, war solves nothing. Let's resort in diplomacy. Well, diplomacy, not everyone is is uh, amenable to a, a diplomatic solution if their their aims are ultimately irreconcilably set against the welfare of other people. If my aim is to destroy another human being or another group, then I might not be uh, it might be impossible for me to be reconciled. Correct. Yeah, that's. Yeah, you know, we we even see that all the time on a on a on a day to day scale. There are some people out there, um, and, and this has been highlighted in the past ten years, that their entire reason for which they exist is to harm or um, to undermine the institution, the police, and you know that. Uh, hey. Just like anybody else, I do have qualms with you know policing itself today, but I, I don't exist in order to to try to destroy that thing. And people like that are just you know it, they're in inside of police work. You also see this as well that there are some people, most people you can reason with if you have to arrest them. You can go up to them and say, "Hey, I got to arrest you. You're going to jail for having a half gram of of meth in your pocket." Oh well. But there are some people that even though you've, you are looking at them doing something illegal, they are going to fight you into cuffs and then fight you all the way to jail and then fight you at the jail and then fight the jailers at booking and all of this. Um, so because they're just not going to listen to reason. You know, there's, there's also a phenomena that the psychologists call sincere lying. There are different degrees of being separated from truth. And this actually has a spiritual application as well. The, the, if if someone shoplifts, let's say the owner of the you know Seven Eleven or you know the Mini Mart, sees someone putting things in their pocket, says, "I saw you shoplift." They said, "No, I didn't." That's sort of I would consider that sort of ordinary deception. But what if the person is just shoplift and they look back at you and they say they immediately shoot back, "No, I didn't shoplift it. I bought this a week ago, but I left the receipt at home and I don't have it with me." You'd think first reaction is like, "Wow, that person really came up with a lie really quickly." But what if you could look in that person's eyes and see that they believed the lie that they had just spontaneously come up with? Now, that's what the psychologists call sincere lying. And it's also tied with the so-called psychopathic personality. And there are people that are so far into deception that they come up with lies like that and they believe their own lies. And uh, it's very difficult to bring that person out of the this realm of darkness and deception into truth. And I think when Jesus says that men love the darkness rather than the light, I think that's what he's getting at on a spiritual level, that there's some who have lived in the darkness so long that the light is hateful to them and they prefer to be in a dark realm. And they don't, you can lay out all the evidence 
you know, lay it out in front of them and deny, 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 deny. These are people that will will do everything they can to push the evidence away and ignore it. This is something that we, we encounter so much. The the failure to I, I I guess just even recognize the the physical evidence that may be in front of them. Well, moving to a different topic, one of the things that you have written about, um, or at least talked about most recently, is the idea of a hero. Um, and being a police officer, sometimes, um, you know, because we do have to go after danger, sometimes, you know, if, if you do a heroic act, you can, as a police officer, be looked at as a hero. Now, just because you are a police officer doesn't mean that you are a hero inherently, but there are simple acts that you can do that embody heroism, mainly going after danger towards something that needs to be done. You know, despite fear or despite even injury that you may receive, or, you know, despite even having to die uh, for doing that thing, um, that is still inherently a, a heroic act. Would you mind talking more about the theory that you have been um, have been putting together with this Plutarchian versus this Campbellian hero? Just explaining what those two terms are and kind of going into that. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, I think that the notion of he, the the hero or in the heroic, whatever, and of course there are different terms that would be used in different times and places. But I think it's sort of hardwired into our human nature, because I don't think there's any culture in the world that doesn't, doesn't honor that person who undertakes, who danger, brings danger on themselves in order to, to, to rescue and deliver other people from the danger and harm coming toward them. You find this from ancient times all the way up to the present, you know, from the stories of ancient, you know, Greek heroes, um, Greco-Roman era, of course, there's a lot, Plutarch is the first century, you know, uh, Greek author greek language author who recorded the deeds of the noble you know greeks and romans but you could trace it all the way to i mean more recently of course stories of 9 11 and those that did not run from the buildings the towers after they were hit but ran into them or toward them in order to rescue people and and those stories resonate with not just with people you know in north america but people all around the world are attracted to to stories like them. The distinction that I drew out in this recent talk on heroism is between the, the, the hero in, the, in Plutarch's writing and the hero in Joseph Campbell. The main dis, one of the main distinctions is that the hero in, in Plutarch in the classical era, the Greco-Roman era, is, is facing off against some publicly acknowledged danger. You know, so there could be an enemy invasion. I use the example of the, the 300 Spartans who held the line against, uh, we don't know the exact number, but it may have been a couple hundred thousand um, Persian invaders. And of course, they, they fought to the death, um, all of them. None of them survived. They knew they were not going to come out of this alive, but they held off the Persians long enough for the Greeks to regroup. And although they, they, were, they died in that encounter at Thermopylae, famous episode of the 300 Spartans, Nonetheless, Greece did win against Persia. And of course, that was a pivotal time in world history because Greek culture respected individuality and, and had a role for participatory government. And 
Persia, by contrast, was a was an absolute Oriental despotism. And so, if Persia had won, it'd be like imagining you know a world if if Stalin or Hitler, you know, were over the the world system rather than than governments that respected uh, their individual uh, freedom and yeah. so on. So so that. Um, you know that the, in that case, the 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 struggle is with an external foe. Joseph Campbell, who has wrote this book called "The Hero with a Thousand Faces," went into world mythology, and what well, he came out with something rather different: that the ultimate goal of the heroic journey was self-realization, and it was there was an outward journey, and then some encounter with outward circumstances, and then there's kind of the returning, coming back with a deeper sense of selfhood. And and I think even in the superhero movies that we have, I was talking with someone the other day about like the Batman movie, and you know I remember watching the Batman shows growing up. I mean the old the old ones from the nineteen sixties and seventies, but the the more recent Batman movies, it's like they 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 play up the traumatic history of Batman, and so Batman is or in some cases other superheroes, they're on the verge of exercising their superpowers right to help other people, and then suddenly something emerges, but it comes from within them. There's some like inner impediment. And it's as if the whole sphere of struggle has been shifted from the external world to this internal realm. It's almost in, you know, inward shift. And so I think the idea, the classical idea of the heroes is something we need to recover because honestly, we live in a world where there are external threats. It isn't all internalized. And we need people that are willing to uh, even to bring bring themselves into a situation of danger for the for the, the sake of the greater good of of society and others around them. Two things stick out to me. What you're saying. Number one is that I think C.S. Lewis actually makes. Oh, and I, I can't remember where he makes this this realization, or where he writes it, but that heroes were changing from overcoming an external problem in order to become heroic to using their their heroic supernatural capabilities in order to in order to overcome like an internal problem with themselves i i, I well now that i'm thinking about this i can't remember if it's chesterton or if it's if it's uh c.s lewis that brings this up and that this is and one of the critiques that i've, I've heard about this is that this is kind of like a, a phenomenon inside of sci-fi that you know all the, the the whole difference between sci-fi and um and fantasy is that sci-fi has computers but there's there's more to it um i think that that sci-fi tries to find god in humanity whereas you know the fantasy uh literary worlds a lot of times trying to have, have the external gods or or a god but anyways um the second thing that that stuck out to me is that, you know, being a police officer, one of the things that you really get a, a lot of people, uh, whether they acknowledge it or not, get nervous about is active shooter scenarios and uh, the reality of modern training for police officers when it comes to active shooter scenarios. In modern policing in 2021 or 2023, most departments teach what's called an a direct to threat response and so what that means is if you're hearing gunshots going off 
inside of a building and there's multiple people and you know god forbid there's oh there's all kinds of people getting shot you're taught to not wait on your backup but to just go in and try to handle the shooter and you know having trained for that and having drilled for it and then myself having acted as the bad guy um for training other people you know that that really is a, a nerve-wracking thing when i'm thinking about you know maybe i'm gonna have to do this one day and it's gonna be on me to you know, take the shooter down because i'm the first one there it, it is i think only through a hero that you're describing a plutarchian hero that's going to be able to 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 overcome that because I'm, I'm a police officer i've got you know what makes me special almost nothing i've got extra training i've got this little vest i've got you know 20 pounds of gear that's it you know i don't have like some kind of crazy super supernatural ability i'm i'm just a normal guy but it is through doing a heroic act that a cop could reach that heroic status this was this was an issue i believe with the ovalde texas scenario right yes yeah if you take uvalde and you compare it to nashville um nashville or for that matter the parkland shooting with the man who was outside who didn't enter the building but mm -hmm. in ovalde we know that um yeah that there were people that were waiting they they made this independent determination that there was no further risk and therefore didn't go in tried to wait out the situation and actually there were parents who tried themselves to go to, to rescue their own children who were blocked from entering the area now one of the things that that strikes me here is that heroic action flows out of a ultimately out of a heroic culture and heroic mentality if you have a society that does not encourage that you then it's much less likely that you're going to get individuals whatever they're training i mean there's how much money do you need to pay someone <laughs> in their salary to convince them that you know that they need to put their life on the line in order to rescue other people a heroic culture like we had in ancient times was one where those that that took on that the risk of danger and even of death for themselves to, in order to rescue others that was highly honored and highly valued and actually you read through earlier american literature too i mean i have this collection of from the 19th century called american patriotism and it's just story it's just a lot of speeches and you know and a lot of this recognized the the you know the patriots who had fought and shed their blood and given their lives you know for the sake of the republic and the freedom that we enjoy and those are i think we give lip service to that today but i'm not sure that we really have a, a heroic culture for the most part around us you know th this is a an across the board phenomenon for both police and for military and even for um you know firefighters and to to a lesser extent to ems that you know we don't have a lot of people that you know, are willing to to step up and say hey you know put my life on the line i want to i want to go forward and do this um the, that culture just doesn't exist nearly to the degree that it um that it once did at least that i believe it did and what's funny is uh, one of the things that I do at the department I work at is I help teach some of the police academies. And I one of the things I try to do with each police academy is I try to ask them, all the, the, the people that are learning, 
the the trainees, cadets, whatever you want to call them, why they want to be a police officer. And this most recent class, uh, I had two or three of them specifically say that it was because of the Nashville shooting that you know they wanted to that that was part of the the impetus why they wanted to become a police officer. That they wanted to to you know put their lives in the line like how those officers did. And, you know, that's very admirable, I think. Um, well, I that's think- I'm glad you brought up a positive example because that shows that that uh, that people still respond, that there's there's not just a negative uh, contagion. There could be a positive a- affirmation reinforcement when people see another person acting heroically. Mm-hmm. We know that we know that, like in the psychology of, of military warfare, that one person's courage or yeah, a small number of people, sometimes just one person like the commanding officer who leads the charge, so to speak, I'm going to be the first to go to face the enemy. That has tremendous um, emotional, psychological power for the men that are following an officer. If they see their officer is not holding, you know, withholding himself, but putting himself on the line. Um, all the great commanders like Alexander the Great and, you know, Napoleon. Well, we, OK, I call their great. I mean, like we could debate the you know political merits of people that invaded other countries. But but they were they were um, renowned you know, military leaders in part because their men, they had great loyalty among the men because the men saw that they themselves took on the hardships that they expected the men to take upon and the dangers that they expect the men to enter into mm-hmm. and that the Alexander and Napoleon weren't willing to, uh, to, uh, they, they were willing to endure and, and suffer and face the same issues that they're, that they, they, that their men under them were going to face. Yeah. That's a, that's a big thing that I think a lot of departments are going through right now is that, you know, there's a, there's a, almost this class of, command staff inside of you know bigger departments the bigger the, the department is the worse the department get this the problem becomes uh, there's you know professional desk duty people that you know you're a high ranking x y and z but you haven't actually been on the street in 10 15 years and so you don't actually know what it's like to be out there and so it it leads to just a, a lot of disconnect between the people that work for you and your office and I think that command staff that actually gets out there and does stuff that that builds just a ton of respect and camaraderie around for the, for everyone else. Well, so along those lines, one of the questions that I have for you is that how do we cultivate some of those heroic virtues? Let's say you know we're not a police officer, right? You know your your job is is being an academic. How do we cultivate some of those virtues? in order to, um, you know, have some of the traits of being, you know, a hero? Well, as I had suggested in the talk that I gave um, that, that you that you got to hear recently, um, I think we need to, first of all, to begin with the, the, the narrative element, the stories themselves that I think, uh, and I'm thinking especially of younger, younger males, boys growing up, they need to hear the stories. There's some of them are ancient stories, there are biblical stories, of heroism. Uh, I think the story of David and Goliath has never gone out of fashion, you know, because I think everyone can identify with it. The idea of the little guy against this overwhelming, you know, force against him who, who uh, nonetheless shows courage. And um, 
And of course, you know, <laughs> Israel, which had been so demoralized by Goliath and the challenge he had, of course, he'd been he'd been taunting, you know, the armies of Israel. The, 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 the whole situation is reversed because of because of David's heroism. So I think the biblical stories, ancient, I believe in the, the power of some of these ancient stories that are not as well known out of authors like Plutarch. Um, and then American history is very rich in these kinds of stories as well. I suppose we could find these in, in European history as well. But I think here in North America, we can start with some of our own earlier um, history, the Revolutionary War era, the the Civil War era, probably earlier American history. I really think once in perhaps World World War II, once we get after World War II, the, the Korean conflict, of course, Vietnam is a real turning point because of so many who participated in that that had doubts about the wisdom and prudence of the war itself, whether it was a necessary war or war of choice for the U.S. And I'm not trying to resolve that. I think there are still many conflicting opinions. I don't think in the case of World War II that there are too many people who have uh, have that question in their mind, whether it was necessary to oppose Hitler with everything, everything we could throw at him. So starting with the stories, but then there need to be real-life situations where um, – where individuals uh, engage uh, with others in significant ways, and I don't, I don't have a real detailed uh, roadmap in terms of how to do that. Ob obviously, we don't create situations where they're dangerous. We don't ignite a building on fire in order to train young, you know, young men to go and rescue the people in the building. Um, but I do think we can look out, we can look into situations where there may be risk and some some degree of risk and danger involved. Um, I'm involved every week in prayer walking in actually what's literally the most dangerous street in the USA. And I'm not trying to turn myself into a hero here. I'm just saying that living in St. Louis, which is recent in recent years had the highest homicide rate in the US, I felt drawn to to this neighborhood. And actually it's Grand Avenue. There have been more homicides per capita on about this two mile stretch of road than anywhere else in the US. Now I don't go there on Friday and Saturday night. I would consider that very foolish, foolhardy mm -hmm. to, that we go sad early Saturday morning, but we go into this neighborhood. We pray with people in the neighborhood. We actually have gone to the sites of shootings and um, we are a, the Lord opens doors for us to minister to people in this neighborhood. And, and we have, you know, just, just last week we had a woman come up and said she'd been off of fentanyl for 45 days. We had prayed with her. So um, we have experiences that, you know, I live in a suburban area. I don't live in this kind of area where there's there's sounds of shooting at night. But I think getting outside of our area of comfort into kind of the frontline areas where there are issues of abuse and violence and drug addiction and so on, that's where we can really learn what it means to, in our culture, to, to show uh, at least some measure of courage. Yeah. And and learn and, and and maybe retrain ourselves rather than than averting try, trying to avoid run away from any kind of risk or danger to actually put ourselves in those situations where where we might have some new kinds of experiences. Also, uh, look at world the world in a different way from the point of view of those who do who live who do live in the neighborhoods where there's sounds of shooting and and um, yeah, gangs are are active. One of the things that. I have started incorporating into my life um, more recently is fasting. And I think that fasting is also something, you know, it's, it's a very small thing, but 
Uh, I have a day in the week where I don't touch dairy or I really don't have any seasonings. I don't have any processed sugar. Really try to stay away from processed foods. So mainly it's just rice and um, some kind of vegetable for that whole day. And that helps recenter you and not and and not always give into you know wanting that have that that good tasting piece of chocolate cake or to have a pie or you know ribs or whatever it helps you order yourself uh, so that you can be more more disciplined with your choices and I think another example that comes up is just doing physical things that are hard to do yes um, today it was raining outside and I was supposed to run for today. And you know, there's two options here. I can either not run because it's raining or I can go run despite the rain. I decided to go run even though it wasn't fun and I got wet and it was cold, but it trains you to do things that you don't want to do, but you still have to do them. And I think that doing that constantly and not just doing what's easy, is is always a good is always a good virtuous thing to do and i think that young men especially need that because american culture in american society because of the ways that we are blessed it is very easy to not have to do very physically hard things that we don't want to especially if we live in a suburban area like you were talking about absolutely you know, absolutely yeah, yeah. I mean, to sit on your couch and, you know, every meal is going to be an Uber Eats that's delivered to your door. You need to walk only, what, 10 paces to the door to get the food. And then you're, I don't know, you're binging on Netflix. Unfortunately, some young men are watching porn, you know, and playing video games and smoking weed. It's like you're living that life. You are not prepared for self-denial uh, for the sake of, of a higher good, whether that's helping to rescue someone else who's in danger, their house is on fire, there's an intruder at their house, or even for your own life, the idea that, that you know, saying no in order to say yes to something else. I have a chapter in Martyrs, Monks, and Mystics, a new book that's just come out called Saying No and Letting Go. And it's, it centers on ascetical, so-called ascetical theology, which is, which is this idea that in order to say yes to God and God's purposes, we have to say no to certain things. And C.S. Lewis touched, said something very similar to what you said, is that, that he used the idea of military training. Why do we have boot camp in which you know people are put through various kinds of deprivation? He said that it's a training for the actuality of a war situation. When you, you, I mean, you may be in a battle where there's no opportunity to stop and eat anything for 48 hours. And if you've already trained your body through fasting, you're ready for that kind of a deprivation or going without sleep for a period of time. You know, fasting, vigils, these were all done in the early church, the desert fathers, desert mothers practices as part of their, their devotion to the life of prayer. And um, they, used, uh, they used the language of like being spiritual athletes just as a you know, well, there's ordinary athleticism, I guess, and there's the Olympic athlete. The Olympic athlete, what their their regimen seems crazy, right, to most people, like getting up at four, three or four in the morning and then just these long runs and, you know, extreme uh, focus on what they eat and don't eat and multiple, you know, uh, 
exercise sessions each day, but 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 they realize that that they have to train at that level in order to perform at a higher level. And if you think about that, that, I mean, if you didn't know about the Olympic Games, you think this person is just a masochist or just trying to suffer as much as they can. If you understand where they're trying to get to in terms of their physical performance, it totally makes sense. And I think there's a spiritual analog to that. I think that there is a kind of no pain, no gain principle that applies to the spiritual life. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's, um, and th this is something that doing family prayer with my whole family is, is so crucial and that, you know, it's, it's easy for us to, you know, okay, we're only going to pray at dinner because we're all together at dinner and that that's it. But, you know, doing an actual liturgical formal prayer every day and carving out time to do that with, you know, my wife and my child, you know, that's harder, but it's a better thing to do. And simply because it is just, it, I wouldn't say it's more inconvenient, but it does inconvenience you to do something like that. I've got one more question for you here. Um, and this is along the lines of um, young men in modern American society. It, we've talked about this a little bit. How does our loss of an idealized hero affect our younger male generation fortunately i had good parents that taught me you know, what being a man looks like and then also um, you know my job has taught me a lot a lot about that as well um, but how does our you know our slow gradual loss of heroism of an ordered heroism how has that affected our our youngest generation of men well, I think we see the effects of that pretty clearly. And there's a, a growing literature. I could, if I had time, I could run through about half a dozen books on this. Christina Hoff Summers, um, The War Against Boys, and Richard Reeves of Boys and Men. There's quite a literature that has emerged about the lack of motivation, direction in the lives of young men today. We see this in things like college performance. You know, the percentage of college enrollees who are males dipped below the number of women that that women are you know they are not only completing college with higher grade points they are getting more master's degree in general than than young men are and this is really for the first time in the last few years people are looking at this and seeing this as a really dangerous social trend that um that so many younger men are unmotivated and directed so i think the lack of any kind of call to um, self-denial for the sake of a greater good is is very um, demoralizing to young men. And I think, it, it, I mean, the irony is that like you have to ask for more <laughs> to you know to get more. It's like by asking for less and less and less, it it has this demoralizing effect. And then there's this bifurcation, the opposite direction: the young men that are tuned in to like Andrew Tate. And what Tate presents is this, this very self-assertive, but also ultimately self-centered picture of kind of hyper-masculinity where we, we, uh, we regard uh, other, you know, we simply um, push forward with whatever we want and women are there to, to do our bidding and to be subordinate to us. And, and we can use them sexually if we want. This is all in the you know, sort of Andrew Tate. Um, 
that's we have this distorted i mean that truly is toxic masculinity right i think a heroic masculinity is somewhere in the middle between these two because it it, it actually offers the challenge that is needed so that men can really develop their powers of self-denial and of purpose direction leadership heroism but but in a way that is is attuned to the their own long-term interests and also the good of the community around them. It's a it's a, it's in the role of you know of service and and you know we haven't talked a lot about scripture, but Jesus says in John 15, greater love has no man than this that he lay down his life for his friends. And so there is a there is a kind of Christian aspect of heroism as well. And we need to recover that because the idea that there's just no challenge in life, we just as I say, just sit on the couch, absorbing the media and have, you know, during our off time that that's, there has to be something more to aspire to in life than that. But on the other hand, we don't want people to go in this, this toxic direction. Very wise words there. Um, I definitely think that a call to self-denial would be um, a very good solution for a lot of this. Well, Dr. McClymond, the last question I've got for you here is, do you have any final parting advice that you would like to give um, to our audience? Well, I think that we're all, you know, the Lord puts us all on, on this earth for purpose. And I think that the, the greatest experience of life for man is going to be a sense of coming to clarity about one's own purpose and one's, one's own calling. And, and I think that the, um, that we need to, we need to, engage individually in a discernment process, but also in, in communication with others. We don't discover this all on our own. That I would say any young younger men that are listening to this, it would be important to talk with your family members, with your friends, with a pastor, a spiritual leader, about like, what, what, do, you, what do you see me, what do you see as the strength that I might have to offer? And how can I cultivate that? And to think long-term, because, um, it's possible within our culture just to go with the flow of what is happening around us and not to think, where do I want to be a year or five or 10 years from now? And, and, and it's easy to look on from a distance and to admire someone who's achieved something, but we're only going to achieve those things if we, if we, uh, we have a plan to do so. And, and typically that's going to involve that element of self-denial saying no you know, things that we might want to do right here and now in order that we can say yes to those things that are really uh, important in the long term and even in important eternally. That's been a constant lesson for my life. You know, learning different languages and then losing a bunch of weight, you know, having to do these things that are hard in order to gain something. And also, uh, I assume getting a PhD is very hard um, and that you have to, you know, set aside time in the now in order to do something better in the future, right? That's... Well, it's, it's self-directed. Yeah. And there've been, I've had, fortunately I haven't had too many, but there've been students that kind of gave up a couple who gave up in the process. And, and honestly, what you discovered too, is once you do a PhD, that's just the ticket into the room. And then as soon as you get in that room with other PhDs, so what have you done since then? You know, so it's, everything's relative, you know, in terms of like what counts as, uh, as, as success or an achievement. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. McClyman. Remember, if you have any questions you want to submit to the podcast, feel free to fill out the Google form that's going to be attached into the description. 
Also, if you want to be a guest or if you know someone that you think would be a great guest, please fill out the Google form um, that's also listed below the question one. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at RemainingSanePC and have a blessed rest of your day.